you have your Bible on, you can turn to Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. And uh, before we jump into God's Word, we need to pray. So join me. Father, uh, we are dependent on you. Your Spirit will work. He will do what you want him to do. He will do what he wills to do, which is your will. Pray that Christ would be seen here. That you would shepherd the hearts of your people through not only a unconventional truth, but through also what is a difficult truth sometimes. Trust you in this, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> what is the most important commodity in the entire world? Is it gold? Is it cash? Is it power? I think a lot of people would say maybe those are two of the hottest commodities that people in the world want the most. Gold, because you can buy anything, or power, and they can both get you each other. Those are pretty meaningful commodities that people in this world chase. But I don't think it's either of those. I think it's something else. This precious commodity in the world, I'll give you a hint, it's in your pocket right now. Or maybe you're looking at it in your hand. And no, it's not your phone. But it's on your phone. Governments have killed for it, started war because of it, and will do anything to get it to use it to their advantage. It exposes lies and reveals truth. This commodity is at the center of every decision ever made by every person who has ever lived. It judges the guilty, and it exonerates the innocent. You look for it, with every internet search. And everybody wants some piece of it. It is at the root of all good things. And it can be used to do the worst evils. And without it, there can be no love. Because this commodity informs love, informs you, how to love, and who to love. Does anyone have an idea what this precious commodity is? You can guess. I'm going to guess you get it wrong. You want to guess? I'll give you freedom. Go ahead. Truth. Truth. <gasps> My mother-in-law got it right. <laughs> Way to go. Knowledge. I'm going... That's right, I did tell you that yesterday, didn't I? <laughs> okay. See how she used knowledge? I'm going to show you today that without knowledge, your love, without knowledge, your love will be lame because knowledge is the root of love. And so I'm going to push you to do something that I think a lot of Christians don't like, which is to grow in knowledge. So we're in verse 9 of Philippians chapter 1, and Paul says to the Philippian church, <clears throat> and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. The Philippian church was already loving well. 
Paul was in prison, and Paul's imprisonment was not prison today where you're locked in a jail cell, although he did get to that point eventually. But his imprisonment was uh, basically being guarded by a Roman guard at all time, and they would shift in intervals to watch Paul. But he could kind of go as he, where he wanted, as freely as he could. He was a Roman citizen, so he had some freedom, but he was imprisoned. And then he went to trial. When he went to trial, he needed support. And the Philippian church sent Paul all the support they could send him. So Paul is telling him, I feel, if you look at the verses before this, he, he says, it is right for me to feel this, this is verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So they loved Paul, they loved the gospel, they loved the kingdom, they loved the ministry by supporting Paul in his imprisonment because Paul's imprisonment was for the gospel. But then Paul writes this letter to them and says, hey, yeah, thanks, great, I love you guys, you're doing a fantastic job, but my prayer is that your love would abound more and more. So he's asking for more love, and by more, he means he wants them to take their love to the next level. He wants them to grow into better ways to love the gospel, better ways to love God, better ways to love others. And his solution is in verse 9. The way that love abounds more and more is, verse 9, with knowledge and all discernment. So instead of thinking of knowledge and all discernment as being two separate things, you have knowledge and you have discernment. This isn't the spiritual gift of knowledge and this isn't the spiritual gift of discernment. These you have to think of these two things as uh, united. They're not separate. Think of them as like a compound truth because the use of knowledge requires discernment, right? I mean, think about like a referee in, a, in any sporting event, say basketball, okay? A referee in basketball has knowledge, and the use of that knowledge requires discernment. In the moment of the game, he has to look at what's going on based on the knowledge of the rules that he has and make a discernment at that moment to blow his whistle or not. So discernment and knowledge are, are, are totally related and somewhat inseparable. As, as far as using knowledge, discernment's always required. So these aren't really separate, it's just one thing. Essentially what Paul is telling them is get knowledge and use it right. And the way in which Paul wants to see it used right is to love. So to have knowledge and use it discerningly is to love. And you can't love if you don't have knowledge. And I'll explain why. The best use of knowledge is love. And without knowledge, love will always fail to be all that it should be. And this makes sense in any circumstance. Think about when you discipline your children. If your children are older now, when you did discipline your children a while ago, if one of your children sins or does something wrong, you just swoop in to discipline. But the first thing you do, or maybe you should do, probably don't always do, but that's okay, is ask questions, right? What happened? What's going on? What did you do? What were you thinking? Why were you thinking that? What were you feeling? You know, you, you have to gather information in order to for your discipline to become informed, and then when your discipline is informed with knowledge, your discipline becomes more just and more loving because it will be fair and based on the knowledge that you gained. So you can apply this reality that 
Knowledge makes for better love. You can apply that reality to almost anything in life. Specifically love. And that is why knowledge and discernment are essential to godly love. Now, knowledge itself is not love. Okay? Knowledge is the root from which genuine Christ-like love grows. I'll give you a biblical example of this. The Pharisees, they believed that they were worshiping the one and only true God. And they also believed that Jesus was not the Messiah. And and the the God they worshiped was the God of the Old Testament. The same God we worship today. Because the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. The same God today. The same God he always was. He never changes. So... The God that we worship in the Old Testament, the Pharisees would say, yeah, that's the God that I'm worshiping. See, so Jesus, though, shows up and he reveals to these Pharisees that they are not actually worshiping the one true God. In John 8, 19, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you, now keep in mind, if you don't know who the Pharisees are, they are the super mega religious Jews of their time. If anybody, anybody was needed for any kind of spiritual thing at all, in any relationship to anything religious at all. The Pharisees were the religious sect that people went to. They were it. Okay? And to tell the Pharisees what Jesus is about to tell them is the biggest insult to the biggest religious group that existed in the time. And he says in John 8, 19 to the Pharisees, You know neither me nor my father, if you knew me, you would, also, you would know my father also. So the Pharisees believed and thought they were genuinely worshiping the one true God, but Jesus reveals to them that they are not at all worshiping the one true God, because if they were, they would also be worshiping Jesus. But they hated Jesus, and they said, Jesus isn't God, and what Jesus said in John 10.30 is, I and the Father are one. If you don't know me, You don't know the Father. So who are they worshiping? Not God. The Pharisees didn't have accurate knowledge, right? They had inaccurate knowledge about who the Messiah is and what the Old Testament prophecies said about the coming Messiah. And their lack of knowledge dramatically affected not only how they loved, but who they loved. Which Jesus exposes in John 8, 42-44 when he tells the Pharisees that their lack of knowledge has caused them to love a false God, not the one true God. He said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. But you are of your father, the devil. That's the worst God to worship. He's not a God. He thinks he's a God. Do you, do you see how important knowledge is? The Pharisees are based on knowledge, think they're worshiping God, but they're not. How many people in America call themselves Christians, go to church, say they worship God, tell you, yeah, I believe in Jesus. We learned that last week, right? Oh, I believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. There were Jewish heretics in the first century who would have confirmed that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave for your sins, and they would say, I believe that and I'm saved, and they would add other things to the gospel And that's a heresy. Those people would confirm that they're believers. And we would ask them that question. 
Do you believe these things? And they would say yes, and we think they're Christians. There are people who, based on their own knowledge, go to church, say they're Christians, but aren't. I mean, I don't know who they are. It's hard to, to spot them. I'm not like trying to pick them out necessarily. But how many people don't have accurate knowledge? I mean, are you aware of the knowledge that just believing in, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave and having faith in him, that just saying you believe that doesn't mean you're saved? In fact, as a pastor, if anyone ever asks me, is that person saved? My first answer is, I don't even know. I mean, I'm not their judge. I don't determine whether they're saved or not. But I tell you what God, Jesus says I am supposed to look for. Fruit. Time will tell. Evidence will be revealed whether people are genuinely believers or not. And if they're not, it's because they don't know the gospel. It is knowledge that gets us to love. And with the wrong knowledge about God, the Pharisees worshipped a false god but believed, really genuinely believed that they were worshipping the one true God. So much so that they decided to kill people who said they were Christians because they were so committed to the one true God. So knowledge is vital to love because knowledge informs Love. So to love better and to love more, you must grow in the knowledge of God. Now I think this idea of growing in knowledge and gaining understanding and, and might rub some people the wrong way in, in one respect. I've been in plenty of conversations with believers where we're discussing doctrine or theological concepts. And let's be honest, if we're talking theology, right, those conversations tend to get a little deep. Right? And I'll be in those deep conversations with people, and someone will chime in and say, and, and what they'll do is they'll push back against all this knowledge and all this depth and all this. You guys are getting too, too confusing, too deep. You just, just stay in the right lane. And they defer to something that they think is greater, love. They defer to love. And they'll say things like, whoa, 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 all this deep theology and doctrine. You guys are getting too confused. You're getting too deep. What you're missing is the most important command. Love God and love others. My response to that is you can't love God or others more than you already do if you don't grow in the knowledge of God and his word. Depth is required. There isn't a person in this room who doesn't need to get deeper in the knowledge of God's word. Not one. There's not a single person in this room who could stand up and claim, I don't need to know more. And I don't think anyone in this room is arrogant enough to even think that way. So it doesn't show up in that way. It doesn't show up in like, oh no, I don't need to learn more. It shows up in your lack of desire and pursuit of knowledge. How much time do you spend in a week in God's word digging deep? How much time do you spend in good books by great Christian authors who cause you to dig and go deep? How much time of your life is spent gaining and growing in the knowledge of God's word and who he is and what Christ is like and what you were made like and how Christ has changed you and what your sin will do and what things to look out for and how to be discerning and what knowledge to gain and how Christ has covered your sins and how he's made you righteous and how you should live your life in, in the perfection.
perfection of Christ, even though you're a sinner. How many of you spend time digging into those truths so that you can live them out and love God better? Think about knowledge and love and how closely they are, they're related. My wife and I go on dates. If you look at my phone on the calendar, one day I open up my phone, and every single Friday, because we have a shared calendar, so everything she puts in the calendar goes on mine, and every single Friday night it says, Mark and Holly date. And I was like, where'd this come from? She's like, we're going on dates every Friday night. So we go on dates. You know why? Because I want to spend time with her, and she wants to spend time with me. The more time we spend together learning about each other, that's gaining knowledge, and husbands and wives, I don't care how old you are, how long you've been together, there is always more to learn about each other, okay? And if your spouse and knowing them is inexhaustible, how inexhaustible is our God? So we go on these dates so that I can gain knowledge, more and more knowledge of my wife. Why? Because I want to love her better and more. If I stay on the same plateau of love with my wife, it's not going to last. So that's an example of a human-to-human -human relationship that reveals an even greater truth in our relationship with God. We have to know him better. We have to learn more about him. You have to dig deeper. I do not want to be the pastor of a church that only wants the surface level teaching. I want you to dig deep. And when I preach a sermon, I want it to be deep, but I also want it to be reachable, attainable, not so deep that everyone's lost, but deep enough to just pull you down a little bit. Just dig another foot deeper. Let's, let's find some more gold in the soil of God's word. I'll give you another example of knowledge because I want this to become I want this to become practical for you I want this idea of knowing who God is and, and, and gaining knowledge of him and discovering his character his nature his personality his desire and his sovereign will all these things about God I want you to understand them all and listen you will never understand them all and neither will I because God is inexhaustible. But I want to address an example that helps you feel the, the practicality, the tangible nature of learning more about God and how that relates to how you love God. And I think the best way to really make that feel genuinely powerful is to reach you in your deepest and most excruciating pain and suffering in your life. Because you will never know the love of God the way you have known it before until you've experienced some of the worst suffering in your life. Because that's when the gospel of Jesus Christ, when God says in Romans that while we were still sinners, yet Christ died for us to show his love while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. That truth about Christ's sacrifice, that love from God is best felt in your deepest sorrows, your greatest pains, and your worst sufferings. And in those times of your worst sufferings and your greatest pain and your worst anguish is when the nature of God is most important. Is when what you know about God matters 
most. When you are hurt or in pain or grieving, when you lose a loved one, I've said this before, there's, I, I have ne- I, I've never lost a child who had been born. I don't know that pain. It's, it's unimaginable to me. And it hasn't even happened to me. And to me, greatest pain ever. Nothing worse. Can't be. Doesn't matter how old that child is. You could be 100 and they could be 85. And I'd imagine it's 80, maybe. 85. Yeah, that'd be too close. So, <laughs> so either way, that, that would have to be the worst. Just, I can't imagine anything worse. So I'm trying to get you to like maybe the worst possible pain you could imagine. To draw out the greatest reality of the nature of God in such great suffering and such a terrible pain. Maybe the second worst would be if you were being physically tortured for days. And thinking to yourself, why God? Why? And what do we all resort to in those moments? Oh, God, it's, God is love. We either kind of jump to like, God, why are you allowing this? Why are you allowing this? What is going on? Stop this. Or we resort to, well, I know God is my shepherd and my love and my comfort and my peace, and he will carry me through. And that is absolutely true. But there is another peace that fills the picture of God in your suffering. And my, this, is just, this is all just an example to get you to understand the significance of knowledge and knowing God so that you can love him better and endure suffering even better. Knowing God better reveals that God is doing more than just using your situation. Because that's what we do, right? God, I know you're going to use this pain and suffering. You're going to use this situation in my life to, to, to allow me to preach the gospel or to share your word, or to love other people, or to be a better comfort to others in the future, down the road. I know you're going to use this situation, God. And what I'm telling you today is, God is not just using your situation. He's not just using your suffering. He's not just using your hardship and your circumstances. I'm going to tell you something that I think you're immediately going to recoil at, like, whoa, you can't say that. I'm going to tell you, he is causing your suffering. Lamentations 3, 31 through 33. The Lord will not cast off forever. Listen to these words. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. In times of hardship, times of pain, suffering, and difficulty, I don't know anybody, myself included, who goes, it's not easy to just go, God, this pain and suffering is from you, but you know who did it? Job. Job did it. Job lost everything he had. And then what does he say when his wife says, curse God and die, Job? He goes, woman, Should we not, should we only receive from God good, but not also receive from God evil? Meaning Job believes, and Job's right, 
Job believes that the evil that happened to him was from God. And then the very next verse, the author of Job says, and in everything Job said, Job did not sin. Which means Job's analysis that God was the cause of the evil that happened to him is accurate. And you're probably thinking to yourself, did you say God causes evil? Because I'm pretty sure the Bible is very clear that God can't do evil. Right? So what do we do with that conundrum? The Bible's clear God causes grief. The Bible's also clear that God causes your righteousness. Ezekiel 36, 27. He says, I will give to you a new heart and I will cause you to obey my word. Anything you've ever done righteous in your life was the Holy Spirit doing it. He's the cause, not you. He's the cause of everything. And what does that mean? That, that, that should present to you so many questions, some of them concerning questions. Are you saying that God can do evil? Not at all. Of course God can't do evil. But God can ordain other agents who are evil to do their evil and it be God's sovereign will. Which means in your deepest suffering, at your greatest pain, in your worst moments, that was a cause of God. And if you're sitting there thinking, I can't believe that, Mark, that God, my God, that I love, my shepherd, my savior, the lover of my soul would ever put me through such pain. That can't be true, and I refuse to believe it. But it is true. It is true because there's a reason for it. There's a purpose in God doing that. There's a purpose in God taking from you. He can give as he pleases and he can take as he pleases because all things are his, including you or any loved one that you've ever known. Any possession you've ever had. It's all his and he can do as he pleases with it. And he can give it to you and he can take it from you. And you can think for a moment, but why would God put me, a child that he loves so dearly through such pain? It has to be the enemy who's hurting me and God who's rescuing me. Well, number one, it could be the enemy who's hurting you. That was Job's life. That was Satan's attack. Ordained by God. I got another example. In 1 Chronicles and 2 Kings, you've got the same story where you've got David who does something wrong. And in one retelling of the story, David, uh, the author says that Satan tricked David into counting the people, and that was sin. And in the other text, the exact same story, it says God caused David to do this. What does that mean? means God was the ordaining cause of Satan, the evil actor, or doing an evil against David that causes David to sin. That's God's will. That's a sovereign will. Well, how can a sovereign God cause such terrible things, ordain such terrible things, and still be a God of love and peace and comfort and good and righteousness? Because he's at, because he's at work. He's at work on you. If it, there's at all any thought or feeling in your mind, like, I, this, this truth, this can't be truth. This doesn't sit well with me. It doesn't settle well with me. 
I'm going to spare you the 25 verses that I could just throw at you that would just show you over and over and over again through Scripture where God is just causing evil agents to do evil for his will, which always turns out for his good. All right, we have this promise in Romans 8 that for those who love God, all things will work out for good. Even in your deepest pain and your greatest suffering. And God is at work. Listen to what Paul says. I know I've used this verse a lot, Lily, but this is so vital to our lives. Listen to what Paul says when he was going through the deepest anguish of his life. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9. through 9. He says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul wanted to die. Have you ever been in such pain, such significant despair and grief and anguish and sorrow that you were like, I'd rather just be dead, God. Take me instead. That's how Paul felt. And why? Why did God put Paul through that? Verse 9, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Knowledge is incredibly practical to love. Our knowledge that God causes our grief in his sovereign will, that he ordains, his sovereignty says, this is what I'm going to do. I choose to cause, to ordain all these evils through evil actors and evil agents who are performing according to their sinful, evil nature. And at the same time, Scripture also reveals this underlying truth that we have a God who loves us and protects us and shepherds us and serves us and gives to us and comes to us in our despair and comforts us. How can that dichotomy of God exist? It exists because God has two wills. Two wills. And if you're thinking, what are you talking about? Well, some of you have heard me say this before, so maybe you're not. Two wills. He has a sovereign will, and he has a will of desire. So he has a will of decree, where he decrees what happens, de determines what happens, and he has a will of desire. And I'll explain it like this. We have it as humans, too, right? In a smaller, less glorious way, as a kind of an example or a little picture of how God is, we have it too. I'll use the parenting example again. Okay? If my child disobeys and they need to be disciplined, do I want, do I desire, am I like, man, do I wake up in the morning and go, man, if I could I'd do anything just to be able to spank my kid today, oh, I just want to slap that kid so hard, right? No one wakes up like that. Good parents don't wake up like that. Okay? But when your child disobeys, do you still, do you desire to spank them? No. No one does. I don't. You know, when, when your parents are told, this hurts me more than you, I tell my kids that all the time. Like, I know this sounds super corny, but like, this really hurts me more than you. I don't want to do this. And I tell my kids, but I have to. I am commanded to discipline. I'm not just talking about spanking. I just mean disciplining your child. I am commanded to discipline you. 
It's my responsibility to obey God and discipline you, to remove sin and insert righteousness through discipline. I am called and commanded by God to do it. I have to do it. It is not my will of desire, but it is my will of what we'll call decree. It is my quote-unquote sovereign will. I don't desire it, but I have to do it. Now, I have to do it because God commands me. God isn't commanded by anybody. But it just shows that parents, anybody, can have two wills working at the same time. I do not will to discipline you, but I will discipline you. And that's how God works. He has two wills, a will of decree and a will of desire. He does not desire your suffering. He does not want your suffering. If you look back at, Brad, could you go back to Lamentations slide? If you look at that Lamentations slide... The Lord will not cast off forever, though he cause grief. That is the, the decree of God. That is, his, that is God's will of decree. I will be the, the, the person who determines that you will go through grief, that you will suffer, that your life will be hard, that you will cry, that you will be sad. It will hurt. It's my will. I control everything. Nothing can exist outside of my sovereign will. Nothing can exist outside of my sovereignty. There is no will within a human being that can be free from God's sovereign will. It's impossible because that human free will would have to exist outside of God's sovereign will, which would be an area that is non-existent. So it's not possible. But then look at the end of the verse. For he does not, what? Willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. So we've got this... this contradiction that is answered. we got this contradiction. God causes grief, but not willingly cause the grief. How do we answer that contradiction? God's two wills. His will of decree is I cause the grief, but my will of desire, I don't willingly, I don't want to hurt you, but it's required. Why is it required, Paul? 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9, I just read it for you. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. He is free to do as he pleases. He is free to put you through grief. You are his. He can do that because his knowledge, think about this, his knowledge of his own value is far beyond your knowledge of his value or your knowledge of your own value. He's all-knowing. There's nothing he doesn't know. And if God knows everything, what does he know about himself? Everything. And so what does he know about his own value? It's perfection. He knows the perfect degree of his own value, which is why God says, worship me and me alone, because I know everything. And everything else that you could worship, I made it, so it's mine. So you should worship the creator, not the creation. And because I know my value so well, and my value is beyond anything you can imagine, it would be bad for you to worship anything but me. That's what he tells us. If you want to go ahead and worship something else, you might call me a megalomaniac or an arrogant jerk or just a self-centered God who just wants all the glory and all the praise. Well, yeah, because he deserves it. And he's the only one who's worthy of it. And he's the only one who knows the fullness of that reality. And he looks at you and goes, you want me to love you? Do you want me to do what's good for you? 
I'll give you a way for you to have the best life you could possibly have. I'm going re- to redeem you from your wicked sinfulness that causes you to not even know me, love me, and it causes you to hate me. And then I'm going to redeem you and make you like my son, Jesus Christ, give you his perfect righteousness so that you can see me finally, like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that God opens our eyes to the knowledge of who he is so that we can see him for who he is and love him. And he goes, now I've given you vision and sight to see me so that you can have the best life you could possibly have, and that life is a life of worshiping me. That's his plan. Because he knows the best life for you is him. Nothing, that doesn't make him a megalomaniac or some crazy god. That makes him perfectly all-knowing, powerful, and sovereign. And with a God, a God with all that knowledge and all that awareness of his own value, looks out at all the earth and goes, I mean, think about this, guys. You look at an ant on the ground. Maybe there's a couple ants marching around when you were a kid and you took out a magnifying glass and you burned up the ants and you're like, ha, you laugh about it, you move on with your day. Right? That ant is done. They're like, oh, my goodness, right? Like suffering to the nth degree. And we're just up there like, ha, ha, ha. Because it's meaningless, right? Listen, God has more authority, more freedom over your existence than you will ever have over that end. The comparison between God's freedom to do as he pleases with you is astronomically greater than your freedom over that end. And we wouldn't even bat an eye at killing an ant. We kill them all the time. Now, there is a difference because we're indifferent to ants. They're not people. and We don't love them. God doesn't look at us like ants. But his sovereignty, his greatness, his power, his value is so far beyond ours. And we look at God and we're like, but, you know, we look at God and we're like, God, come down to me. And we're like, you made me like this. And we're like, God, we're just so close to you in value. We're just, you know, why... You're, you're like a superhuman. And God's like, you, I, I, I made a bridge between us in Christ, but my nature and your nature still haven't changed. I am beyond your comprehension, and you are simply a human being. And we humanize God to understand him. And God's like, stop making me a person. My value is incomprehensible. My sovereignty cannot be known. And I will and can do with your life as I choose. I will give and I will take away because that is the freedom that I have. And when we look at God and say, no, God can't do that, that's us just bringing God down to our level and saying, God, come down here and be like me because there isn't a human who would do that. So therefore, my God can't do that. And God's like, I'm not a human. And you're right, humans can't do that. Because I told them they can't do that. And then made them incapable of doing that. So that I alone can do as I please. And if you think that I'm being a jerk. If you think God's being a jerk by just do whatever I want. We have this other will of God which is his will of desire. And his desire is you. That knowledge about the, the, almost a conundrum, that dichotomy between a God who sovereignly rules over everything and anything can do anything, 
And he does it for your good because his will of desire, even though he doesn't want to hurt you, he does it because his sovereign will says, I want you to be like Christ. And if I have to kill people to make you like my son, I will. If I have to hurt you to make you like my son, I will. You are a statue of Christ that I made. That's what he's saying to you. And he will take the chisel and the hammer and every single strike to your body of discipline. You say, ow, why God? Ow, why God? And he says, I'm making you like my son. And we're like, but you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't cause that. You wouldn't put the chisel there. You wouldn't take that from me. You wouldn't cause harm. The Bible's clear. It says God causes all calamity. When we think about that grand, sovereign, supreme nature of God, it's almost like, yikes. And then all of a sudden we're brought to peace with this comfort that he has another will of love, his will of desire, which is you, to see you prosper, to see you, see you happy in Christ, to see you at peace, to see you loved and fulfilled and full of joy, and, and, and to see you not necessarily physically healed, but that in your suffering, he alone becomes your greatest joy. And that's why he will ordain it. I know that's a huge, I mean, guys, you should have 30 questions that are unanswered right now. That should cause you a lot of like, whoa, 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 I got, what about dot, dot, dot. I did not just give you the complete rundown of God's sovereignty. I barely touched the surface. But does it have you thinking? Is that a relatable reality to how you what you know about God, your knowledge of God, the information you have about God? Is that what, what I just showed you, what I just told you, does that inform how you're going to feel in your pain and suffering? Because it should. And if it does, and it should, and you now have a new knowledge about the nature of God when you suffer you will be able to love him better. Without knowledge, you cannot love God better. Because like the Pharisees, if you don't know this about God's sovereignty, and you go through hardship and suffering, and the only thing you resort to is just peace, 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 give me love, joy, and peace, God, and you can't recognize the hard reality that this is God's will for your life, then you're missing out on a whole aspect of God that you're not worshiping. And if you've already been through that suffering and you didn't worship that part of God, it is never too late to worship him in that way. Amen. He is full of love and grace and truth and always inviting you. Now that's just God's sovereignty. We could go on and on. We could talk about God's love, his forgiveness. What about creation? What about nature? What about science? What about relationships? What about, I go on and on. That's just, that was just one little glimpse into the sovereignty and supreme nature of God. What if we start exploring all the realities in the universe and all the doctrines in the Bible? We could go deeper and deeper and deeper and it would be inexhaustible because God himself is inexhaustible. Not knowing more about God tomorrow than you know today is not okay. It's just not okay. 
If this morning, when you walked in here, you knew the same about God, or I'm sorry, let me rephrase this. If tonight when you go to bed, you know the same about God that you knew last night when you went to bed, that means you didn't grow in knowledge that day. And that's not okay. Now it's Sunday, you're at church, I assume you're growing somehow, okay? But if you're counting on once a week at church to grow, you're not going to grow. I mean, you will, but not fast. And you're missing out on a whole treasure trove of God's love. There is a, there is, there's so much of God to explore. I mean, don't you want that? I want that. I want to know him better. And you know what I want? I want to know the things that I don't want to know. I want to hear the hard truths that make me like go, I don't want to face that reality. Every time I preach, so when I preached through 1 Corinthians, you know, and I told my wife, I said every time, every text, every chapter I preached on, that truth would come to life in our church. And she goes, cool, can you not preach on suffering, please? <laughs> I was like, because who wants to go through suffering, right? Nobody wants suffering. I don't want suffering. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to grieve. And God doesn't willingly want that for me either, but he might ordain it for my good and for his glory. And if so, so be it. And if, if, if me gaining knowledge about God leads to that, then that's okay. Easy for me to stand here and say, hard to do. So, we are encouraged not to settle for loving God, that, that love that is just a manuf manufactured product of your feelings. Love is more than feelings. We are encouraged not to settle for love that is just a, a recoil to my disinterest in growing in knowledge. We are encouraged to not settle for love that is just scared of growing and learning about who God really is because learning what God is really like will make me have to change my life and that will make me accountable to my sin and, and, and that will make me have to adjust the way I live and I kind of like the way that I live because it's really comfortable and no one's holding me accountable for sin so I'd really rather not grow. Thanks. That's the way some people think. And they think that fast as I was just talking so they can get through that and just skip having to know things. I didn't say this is going to be easy, learning about God, growing in the knowledge of God. This shouldn't be easy. He's the most complex being possible. Think about how complex a human is on a biological level. There are elements of, human, of the human body that we still don't understand. And then we're just people. How complex is the, the one who made us? You ever think about this? How, how, many, how, how weird is it when you see someone who looks identical to you? Like your doppelganger? How rare is that? It's so rare. And even in your doppelganger, are they identical to you? No. Are identical twins really identical? Nope. My mom's an identical twin. There were times when I walked up to my aunt and said, Hey, Mom, and she was like, wrong person. You know, but... Even I got tricked. But the point is that even twins aren't perfectly identical. God's mind is so creative and unique and unbelievable that he has created over the span of all human history 50 billion people, every single one of them distinct. 
How? If you asked me to draw a human face, it would be the same every time. Circle, eye, eye, smiley face, nose. That's it. If you asked me to draw a dog, it'd be the same thing with big ears. That's it. Like, I, it's, it's, it's incredible how deep and creative his mind and his reality and his nature is. There is an endless amount of knowledge to learn about our God. And if you want to love him better, it's not just doing more and acting more and, and it just, you know, oh, I gotta, I gotta join this ministry so I look like I'm loving. Oh, I, I gotta go serve this people. Or I gotta give more. I gotta do this just so it looks like I'm loving more. I gotta do more love. No, sit down, be quiet, open your Bible, and read. Study. Pray. Contemplate. Ponder. Meditate on the text. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Loving God is completely dependent on knowing God. Let's pray. I want to know you better, God. I speak for all of us and I say, we want to know you better, God. We don't want to get hurt in the process. We don't want it to be difficult. We want it to be an easy, smooth ride with no bumps in the road. But don't let us think that. Because your word is clear. That our glory with you is predicated on enduring suffering with you. So give us the strength in our metaphorical spiritual legs to walk the difficult trek over tough terrain to your glory. Give us the energy, the passion, and the heart to pursue the depths of who you are. And when we find hard things there, comfort us with peace and love and joy and your shepherding arm around us and carry us through. We want to know you more so we can love you better. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.